As your interior designer, I'm saying do everything in black. Walls, sofa, carpet, goldfish, everything. Um, can we not have a bit of colour? Maybe one tiny highlight in Battleship Grey. It's your home, so you should be in charge. With Avancard's flexible home improvement loan, you are. You can choose any repayment period that works best for you up to 84 months. That's seven years. Find out more at avancard.ie. Lending criteria, terms and conditions apply. New applications only. Seven-year term applies to minimum loan value of €20,000. Avancard Dock Trading as Avancard is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages, radio the greatest podcast in the world, the Marketech Samuel Plan, the Devil's Advocate Shinobi, the Lunatic King Marek, and Single Syllable Mother, the right side of the pond. And of course, if you're not down with that, we got two words for you. It's that. Sup, Lords of Pain, and welcome to the right side of the pond. It is Friday, and we are officially in Royal Rumble season, which is, of course, very exciting here on the show. I think we're all we're all big Rumble guys, um, so expect you know some good Rumble content, historic and present day, in the next couple of weeks. So um, we're going to start off uh, our kind of you know little look at all things Rumble by doing a, a kind of a, a top five. Um, of our favourite winning performances. Um, Plan, of course, for context, is currently on the main page writing um, a series where he's detailing his... Is it top 40 or top 50? Top 60. Top 60? Oh, okay. Other side. It started as top 30, then it became top 50, and then it had to become top 60. Top 60 non-winning Royal Rumble performances. Uh, the first 10 is up on LAP for you to read right now. And inspired by that, we thought we'd have a look at what our favourite winning performances were. So what we did was we all chose our top five. Um, we averaged them out, so we ended up with a top five, except because we had two ties, we've actually got a top seven. <laughs> so, uh, but it gives us some more things to talk about, which is always good. So we're going to count down, um, and we just basically get to talk about why, um, you know, why we thought they were particularly eye-catching winning performances, and um, yeah, just have a general nostalgic chat, I suppose. So hopefully everyone at home is going to enjoy that. So let's start at number five. Um, so we've got a two-way tie here. So um, we've got Undertaker in 2007 and Brett the Hitman Hart in 1994. Of course, he was a co-winner with Lex Luger. Um, so let's start with Taker. Um, I mean, 2007, like, it's not the sort of period of time when you really expected Undertaker to win a Royal Rumble. At least not, not as I remember anyway. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not in a position to comment, really, because I um, th- his win that year was what brought me back from having been away from WWE for two years. When sort of Batista won in 2005, at the time I was kind of knocked about that. I didn't really, you know, I didn't get Batista and I didn't really get where the company was going. It didn't really feel like, you know, uh, I didn't feel like they were they were like the stars of yesteryear at the time. And then I sort of, you know, checked in around SummerSlam 2006 and saw Edge as the world champion. That didn't do much for me. Then I had a friend tell me that The Undertaker had won the Royal Rumble that year, and that was what uh, piqued my interest to bring me back into wrestling I've been watching ever since. So I, I can't really comment on whether you were expecting him, him to win or not. But, I mean, I was 
elated when I heard that he'd won because at least back then the Undertaker was a big favorite of mine and he'd never won a Royal Rumble match of course so um, you know I guess I suppose there was an element of surprise there to be fair like you say 2007 he'd already been wrestling for 17 years you know, another <laughs> 12 years later um, it's insane this- that is it's just ridiculous isn't it um, but yeah and so for him to win was was I, it, I mean 12 years ago it was a nostalgia hit was it though I mean he was still full time he was definitely a veteran at that point but you know he's a, he's a full time wrestler I, I think what you forget about Undertaker around this stage is you know yeah sure Undertaker had that long career but it it's not like where he was a senior at that very top level for that whole time you know he went away quite a bit you know he wasn't just there quite so in your face all the time as the top guy he you know taker's career has always been he's been that attraction guy for a very long time but you know not huge amounts of of like world title runs in that time and stuff like that yeah it's i mean i'm in a similar similar position to plan in the sense that i took the majority of 2006 off and then 2007 I think I'd say that I was was pretty casual about my watching generally speaking for a lot of that time what I will say um, is that you know Undertaker you know kind of taking that world title um, and running with it and and being somebody that that was kind of you know the top guy on Smackdown, along with Batista, of course, Batista had a fair few like lengthy, um, you know, lengthy injury um, breaks, didn't he? Around, you know, kind of around that sort of time. So, I mean, it made sense, I think, for Undertaker to be that kind of linchpin guy, and it was kind of cool, like you said, it's planet was a nostalgia, nostalgia thing, but also a thank you running away because, you know, as Matt said, he'd been such a sort of pillar of of the um, you know, the attraction guy for all that amount of time. And it was actually really good to see him, you know, in those main events as a, as a, as a world champ. Because, of course, you know, in Attitude, he was pretty much a supporting figure for a lot of the time. Um, you know, similarly, the early sort of um, brand extension stuff, he was, you know, kind of a foil to people like Lesnar and JBL. So, yeah, seeing him run with the title was was kind of cool. And, I mean, you know, I, I would have said that, you know, it's, yeah, it's kind of surprising he won a rumble, although WWE do have a tendency to sort of line up and just take it in turns to give things to people that haven't had them yet in some sense. You know, like if you look at like 07, Undertaker, 08, Cena, 09, Orton, you know, 10, Edge, like they were all veterans that hasn't won it before. So, you know, it's a thing that that's, they do. I mean, that that's the fascinating thing, though, and I, I've sort of mentioned this on the show in the distant past. You know, you talk about them being veterans at that point, but really that was when they should have been sort of first emerging as as main event players. You know, Orton obviously won the world title for the first time when he was 24, which is an insanely young age. Um, And Cena sort of ended up, you know, coming to the forefront of the company probably a lot sooner than he might otherwise have done because, you know, The Rock left and Brock Lesnar left. And they had this, uh, this necessity almost that quote-unquote OVW class to step up perhaps much sooner than they might otherwise would have had to had other circumstances historically not come into play. So when you get to, like you say, Maz, oh, uh, Mav, 08, 09, 10, you know, I think it, 
it for me at least it's difficult to look back across the years of the Royal Rumble match and not think that's the period in time when they should have been winning like that I have no problem with them winning there no 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 you're in a curious situation where they are veterans because they were they had to that you know they were either they either were pushed or they had to step up to a higher level than perhaps they should have been earlier on because the results speak for themselves right there's a reason why people kind of uh, turned on on Cena in 05 and 06 because he was probably in that position a bit too soon. There's a reason why Orton's uh, sort of uh, early attempt at a main event run in, in the early notice kind of flopped. It's probably because he was in that position a little too soon. You know, the thing with Batista was obviously he was a little bit older already, but they they that perhaps lent into it a little long. You know, they gave it a bit of a longer build and they lent into it a bit more, so it wasn't quite as as big a flop for them. But it's it's a it's a historical curiosity that one. Um, and so, if anything, I think Undertaker's. I mean, first of all, the performance in, in, of his in 2007, even though it's brief, is a pretty decent one. I mean, I know, Mav, you've sort of soured on the match in, in a match thing to some degree, and I have as well, to be fair, to some degree too. I think it's it's particularly because it's become a little bit overutilized in the time since it happened. Nor was it the first instance of it happening. A lot of people. I think have a tendency to maybe feel it was and it wasn't. But having said all of that, you know, I I do wonder whether it was that win in 07 and what it then transitioned into in terms of, you know, Sean Chase and Cena take Chase and Batista that really kind of started at least planting a seed that granted wouldn't flower for another five or so years, but planted the seed of the notion of, you know, old timers for lack of a better word or veterans, let's say winning Royal Rumble matches, because up to that point, the Royal Rumble had always been won by somebody who was a contemporary star, always, like literally every single year up to that stage. I mean, maybe you could argue Ric Flair and, and Hogan were, were slightly at the end of their time when they were winning, but they were still around for a long time anyway, to be fair. So you have contemporary stars generations winning every single year. Then 07 happens, The Undertaker wins. And Maz is right, you know, Undertaker's still a full-time guy and stuff, but you'd struggle to say he was of that generation of talent. Uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, you start getting those smatterings through, like you say, by the time, you know, 08, 09, 10, even though they are, they should have been sort of contemporary main events at that point. They already felt like veterans. So it, it's it's a curious one for certain. And I'm not entirely sure how much the influence of it has been, whether it's been more negative or positive overall. Well, I think, you know, the, the big thing for me, and I, I know this is probably... A negative to you guys at this point, but you know, I, I think this is the catalyst for the streak within the streak. You know, uh, of what would go on at Mania, it was the catalyst for going with Sean versus Taker a couple of years down the line. I'm pretty sure, uh, and oh, obviously, yeah. obviously, that snowballed. It was, it was actually. One of my very first columns for Laws of Pain was based off, you know, this this match and wanting to see this match that, at WrestleMania. Another thing that it has to answer for. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's dropping down and down the list further and further <laughs> every minute, isn't it? But, you know, it was, I mean, what how you've got to get out of this is, you know, look away from you know, what it, what it became. And I, you know, I love the street within the street. Don't get me wrong. Uh, there's certain things. It went, it went past a certain line and I know you guys weren't happy about all of it, but you know, those first four matches, I know plan, you're a, a big fan of those 
for those four with Sean and Triple H as a collective. I know um, Mav not a big fan of stay down and things like that but um, you know and it went on and you know as we discussed when we did our taker show with doc you guys enjoy a lot of the earlier taker more so than than that street within a street taker because you know his legacy is more than that but you know that very first column it was it's actually my third column if I remember rightly, uh, a lot of my point in that was, uh, you know, his streak is great and all that, but let's let's put some real classics on there, or you know, let's put a real classic on there. Was was the logic behind it? And obviously they followed that up, and with with this epic style match, which you know you guys aren't a huge fan of, uh, certainly done quite that many times. But, yeah, it's an important one. But, you know, more so, the reason why I've put The Undertaker up there is because it it was just a fantastic end to the match at that point. And sure, when you put it together with all The Undertaker and uh, Shawn Michaels stuff that's come since, uh, let's ignore... I think we can all agree we should ignore Saudi Arabia in that, you know, no matter what you think of (laughs) any of the other bouts between them later stage uh, of their career but you know it's, it was fantastically exciting it was a brilliant end to the rumble at the time and you know it it ages well as well i mean I, yeah i mean i, I think is, this was your pick Matt. obviously um you know kind of maz is uh Pick this at three, which kind of uh, was what took it into the top five. Plan and I, for for, for clarity, didn't uh, didn't pick this one. But I mean, I think, like you say, you have to look it out of it, look at it out of context in some senses because it was a really cool thing when it happened. That last, you know, that last few minutes with Sean, you know, it was two two veterans. Like you hadn't really seen them together since. Well, I mean, really, since the, the the match that ended Sean's career the first time around, so it it was undoubtedly like a really uh, a really cool moment and something which I think then snowballed out of control somewhat. But but yeah, it was it was um it was really cool to see him win it. It was like I say, I was pretty surprised by it when it happened, um, and it led to a really good match with Batista. There's no no denying like that Batista match is absolutely fantastic. It's it's one of those, again, one of those great surprise packages. I don't think anyone expects that match to be anything like as good as it ends up being. It's worth saying as well that the, the, the presentation of Undertaker's performance that year in 2007 is fantastic because you have, you know, great Carly come out late on and he's he's throwing people out left, right and centre and, and picking them up and tossing them down, including Sean, of course, at the time. And uh, Michael Cole, uh, I think it's Michael Cole who commentates that year, screams, uh, who can stop, who can stop the great Carly? And then the gong hits. You know, it, the timing of it is perfect, pitch, picture perfect. And then out comes the Undertaker, he takes out Carly. Um, the final four tells a really wonderful little story. Mm-hmm. One of the things I, so this last week on Sports Entertainment is Dead, I broke down the genre, the what I felt were the five key genre tropes of the Royal Rumble uh, as, a, as, a, as a genre, um, the Royal Rumble match. And, um, you know, one of them is that final passage where you have, it might be four guys, two guys, six guys, but there's a very conscious sense of the ending being almost separate to everything else that, that comes before it in terms of there's, you know, there's usually like a stare down or a pause before it kicks off. Um, and the other thing is as well, 
uh, how often those final passages uh, demonstrate such a brilliant sense of character. And I feel like if you'd never watched wrestling before, you knew nothing about anybody, and you sat down, you watched, you know, the 2007 Rumble, you got to that final four, you would know exactly who Randy Orton is, you would know exactly who Edge is, and then by the end of it, you'd ex- know exactly who Undertaker and, and Shawn Michaels are. Um, but Ar- Raid's Dark here do a brilliant job as those kind of secondary antagonists who sort of dissolve apart from one another. Undertaker obviously goes two, one on two against them at one point. There's that lovely moment where the Undertaker does the sit, sit up and Shawn does the kip up. The match within the match, you know, it may be kind of a bit of a of an eye rolling, kind of self aware moment. Um, but uh, that's perhaps I I think it's probably fair to say that it's become more intolerable in the years since because of how long the two of them have sort of hung around and how grandiose the language around them has become. Um, but certainly at the time, extremely effective, very exhilarating, and remains somewhat fun to watch. I think you know I still enjoy watching it. Um, and I like the subtext of the fact that it's in Sean's hometown and The Undertaker frustrates that big victory for him to get back to the top as well. And his reaction to being eliminated is great. So the general presentation of The Undertaker's performance that year, I think, is is really, really well done. Um, I also like just the little touch of the fact that he gets busted open because it kind of evens the playing field out in terms of he's the much fresher man compared to Sean. So it kind of levels out the two characters for the final two when they have that that showdown. Yeah, I just wish I really what I really wish more than anything else, like, is they hasn't like done that really corny thing where they make them one and two the next year. Yeah. Like that was too much, I think. Like I could even cope with the you know, the grandiloquent WrestleMania main events if if it weren't for that, I yeah. think. Um, uh, uh, particularly, you know, if someone backstage said, you know, in in K Fabe, right, we're gonna make you one and two this year then fair enough. Not just, oh, this randomly happened. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, yeah. That's, the, that's the thing because, you know, they did it much, much, much earlier on. With DBRC getting 30 with and DBRC, 1, yeah. Of course, yeah. He bought, he bought number 30 in 89 and then drew number 1 in 90. But the reason that worked was because he bought, he bought number 30 it, yeah. in 89. Yeah, so <laughs> and, and also, you, you can you buy it as a good you can believe it for one person. Yeah. You can't believe it for both of them. You know, Quite, yeah. it's, they but, it, I think they did it years later as well. Didn't they with Reigns and Rusev? Do you remember that in 2000, the, the last two in 2015 and the first two in 2016. So they repeated it then again as well. I, I just, uh, I think, I think, you know, in terms of like shenanigans with numbers, I always just enjoyed Eddie. Who is it? He, he steals someone's number. I can't remember who's it. Is it Ric Flair's number or something like that? He's uh, I can't, I, oh yes he does I think, yeah. <laughs> steals his number backstage love it um, alright let's, let's talk about Bret Hart um, so 1994 um, of course um, uh, a brilliant injury angle I think you know, one of the, those examples I think Austin O one's another one where somebody gets assaulted and then they kind of fight through that adversity so Plan this was, this was your um, high pick yeah uh, I, I mean, obviously, big. You know, I was a hitman. Hitman was my favourite guy for for practically my entire wrestling life. Um, and I mean, first of all, the '94 Rumble in general is such a fantastic Royal Rumble match that really deserves to be spoken about more. It does so much more with so much less than a lot of other Royal Rumble matches uh, have, uh, and indeed do. Um, and you know, at the heart, I mean, you've got the innovation. The idea of two guys going over the top at the same time is is kind of one of those sort of you can buy that happening once because it's sort of a, you know, one of those kind of, even though it's it's obviously staged, you can believe if it were real that that kind of thing could very easily happen. 
given the nature of the match. Um, again, you get that final passage at the end of night four, which is a fantastic uh, version. You've got Hart, Luger, Michaels and Fatu, and they give each other room and space to sort of do more than just the standard brawling. So that's that's great. And like you say, I mean, Hart's entire performance hinges around, first of all, the questions about whether or not he's even going to make it into the match because of the injury he suffers earlier at the hands of his brother, Owen. And then when he does come out, I mean, the, the, the camera shot as he comes out of the, the entranceway is fantastic. Just the camera work at that moment is great. Uh, and then if you keep a close eye on him all the way through the match, 94 is one of the rumbles where you get a lot of bodies in the ring late on. There's a lot of, a lot of people in there. There's a lot happening. And you can easily lose sight of any one of the performers in the just the sheer mass of humanity and action that's happening. But if you keep your eye on Bret Hart, he's constantly selling that injury every second of the time that he's in the ring. And it would have been so easy for him not to have to adhere so strictly to that because it's a Royal Rumble match. You know, I dare say fans would give would afford someone a little creative liberty on that front. But also because, like I said, it's easy for fans to lose sight of any one given performance. It's not like a singles match where all eyes are on you. But he's always selling that leg. Uh, and, and what's brilliant about Night 4 as well is you have the juxtaposition of his underdog story, uh, and then you have Luger as the, the sort of the action hero favorite of, of it all. Um, but again, you know, talking about how they equaled out the final two for 2007, they do it in night four brilliantly as well, because Luger's assaulted backstage by Mr. Fuji's hitmen, Tenryu and Kabuki, uh, who want to prevent him from getting a title shot against Yokozuna. So once you get to the final two, Brett is hobbling around on one leg, but Luger's been beaten down and, and sort of been in them. I think he's probably been in the match longer than Hart as well at that point. Um, so it's, you know, from a from a kind of uh, real world point of view, it's such a brilliant performance in terms of just the artistry and, and just the efficacy of, of constantly selling that leg when you perhaps could have gotten away without doing that. Um, but also it's such a brilliant version of the, the, you know, again, on Sports Entertainment is Dead, another one of the tropes I picked out was how you often have a favourite in the Royal Rumble and it tends to take on one of two forms. You have an underdog or you have an action hero. 94 has one of each. Um, and usually with the underdogs, they tend to, when an underdog performance wins the Rumble, it tends to lead to a far more emotionally engaging WrestleMania arc thereafter. And that's what happened with Brett this year um, in 94. I think it's just a fantastic, fantastic. I think it's actually one of Brett's finest hours, even though it never really gets spoken about because it, once again, he has to sort of share the limelight with somebody else. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a really, it's a really fantastic performance because um, it, it's kind of it's one of those performances that shows you exactly why Brett is, you know, probably in terms of of selling and psychology the, the greatest there ever was. Because, you know, like you say, Planet, it'd be so easy to kind of um, in the midst of the, the, the heat of battle, like forget that you're meant to be selling an injury, but he never stops it. And when he was in that position of being, you know, the person who had the deck stacked against him, that was always what brought the best out of him. Um, and I think that spot at the end where they've got to go out together is is so difficult to pull off. And I know that, like, nowadays, like, people like to sort of zoom in on it and go, ha, 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 it wasn't really touched at the same time. But, you know, watching in 1994, you had no, like, nobody was kind of, you know, doing the big show thing and like taking a videotape backstage to say, oh no, <laughs> you know, it was, <laughs> it was just the fact that um, it, it was something that hadn't been done before, you know, like a year later they'd do the, the Shawn Michaels one foot touch the floor thing. So they were really experimenting quite nicely with rumbles around the mid 90s period. 
and of course, you know, um, Brett as the sort of the top guy of, of the era, you know, he was somebody that absolutely had to win a Royal Rumble, I think, you know, and that WrestleMania 10 experience of losing to Owen in the, uh, in the opening match, but then, you know, defeating Yokozuna, who, you know, let's not forget, had been built up as an absolutely monstrous heel over the previous kind of year, year and a half. Like, that was a really big deal, you know. Still, I think a lot of, you know, people around my Master's age will be a, a WrestleMania memory that's amongst their, their very favourite. So, you know, it's a hugely significant performance for those reasons too. Yeah, no, it was a, it was a great rumble. And uh, for me, what what I remember about Brett on this night is it's what kicked off that Owen feud. Or, you know, what really ignited that Owen feud was was that whole night. And it's that that that's where where I, I see the great positives in it. You know, you can still see Brett limping around. Whenever I picture Brett, that's that's kind of how I picture Brett limping around like, like he is in that. And obviously, that's not the only only match where he sold a leg injury you know he did it in quite a lot of matches but you know that that's how i envisage brett and it's all because he had his leg kicked out of his leg and yeah you know my my love for that night is more based in the tag match earlier on but yeah absolutely it's it's a great performance and great half point like plans last (laughs) week on now Good times. All right, let's have a look at the next one on the list then. So at number four, we have Chris Benoit in 2004. Of course, for a long time, um, he held the record for the longest stay in the Royal Rumble for obvious reasons. They've since um, erased that with with somebody else. Who was it they did it with? Did what with, sorry? Like went past the... Uh, the, the um... Was it right? Well, oh no, no, that was before, wasn't it? What did did Ray have it before, or did they just pretend Ray had it after that? They, they they pretended Ray had it, didn't they? But then they actually had something that went past Benoit's time mark, I think, a couple of years ago. I think Ray broke it the next in two thousand and six. See, I always thought they just pretended it, but I'm gonna look that up quietly while uh, you guys talk about Chris Benoit. Well, they certainly promoted it as as Ray breaking um, Benoit's record two years later. Uh, and either way, you know, I mean, at this point, it's moved anyway because Daniel Bryan was in the Greatest Royal Rumble for like 76 minutes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, mean, that's, I, that's... I don't think anyone's ever going to be breaking that anytime soon unless they do another Greatest Royal Rumble. But um, I mean, I'm, I'm partic- I, I'd like Mazza to kick this one off because we obviously had a bit of a conversation on Facebook, as we always do, when we were discussing what we were going to do for the show today and uh, made some interesting remarks. So I'd, I'd love to hear more. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those I've always assumed that I really liked you know, 04 and Benoit's performance. And I watched it last year and I was like, yeah, it's a rumble that I didn't think was particularly interesting. And I just kind of thought Benoit was there for an hour, <laughs> you know, not, not doing a whole lot. And I know, you know, we're, we're going to get to another one later where I'm sure, um, you know, similar things could be said and you know we we just touched on rays and you know that's one where i know plan and i have both been very vocal over the years that he just lies in the corner the whole day he road dogs his way for an hour so should it really count as a as a great iron man performance and 
No, and you know it's Benoit. You always assume it's Benoit, but I just, I just don't think there's much to hope for. And I know that's strange because you know it, a lot of people love it, and it, it, it's funny. I've got a similar view of the, the WrestleMania 20 main event in that it's yeah, it's a really good triple threat, but it's not, you know how some people view it as the greatest one of the greatest matches of all time on the greatest mania main events of all time and i do wonder if it's i'm just not that i'm just not all in on that benoit run in in 04 you know that it's, that ben it's all because you beat triple h isn't it, it it's it's uh, i've got to say that plays a part but you know it, <laughs> you know you're talking about a time where i was you know, it, it was around the time I was moving from the UK to Mauritius. I wasn't watching religiously. You know, I liked Benoit, but I wasn't Benoit's biggest fan. And where, you know, it, it, it's like we've seen it. You know, we've seen it with Becky this year. We've seen it so many times over, well, last year, I guess, technically now. But where somebody gets really hot and, you know, the, there's this, this whole groundswell of support for them. And because I wasn't involved in that, I don't really have that have that with Benoit and that run in in, in 04 you know and it is bizarre it's the same with, with Eddie's run about the same time where he became world champion it just it doesn't mean that much to me and I sit there and watch that and because I'm not connected to it I just don't see a great deal in that rumble and in that performance I mean sure it, it's a strong performance anyone that's in there for an hour is obviously doing something Maz? I think he must have uh, either muted himself or disappeared. But um, but yeah, I, I mean, to pick up from what Maz was saying, like, I think what's brilliant about Benoit's performance in the Red Bull, by the way, I looked it up, you are right, right? Ray did beat it by a minute, a year, you know, like in 2006. So, um, but yeah, it, I mean, I think what was brilliant about um, the way it was set up was that, was that fact that... Um, you know, he was basically, it was the classic thing where he was being screwed over by management, wasn't it? And I think it's that setup that gives it that kind of emotional heft. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, there's a, I think you've got a, a key part of it is, is how Jim Ross frames it all, um, both after Benoit wins the 04 Rumble and then later when he wins the main event at WrestleMania 20, because the language that JR uses and the sort of the picture he paints is of a, you know, an, an odyssey of a career all leading just through sheer hard work, uh, through toil and graft and blood, sweat and tears to that moment and to those two big victories of Benoit's that helped make him world champion. Uh, and that, you know, so it's, an, again, you know, like I was saying a few months ago with Bret Hart, because it's it's an underdog version of, of that, you know, winner's favourite or favourite winner or whatever you want to call it, it led to a very emotional uh, story arc, a very well, a very emotive story arc, let's say at the time. Um, I think it's a little bit of a harsh criticism to say that he doesn't do anything for an hour. Um, obviously, I know Mazza wasn't necessarily drawing direct comparisons to Ray. I mean, I I once sat and timed how long it took Ray to do uh, two things back to back in that in that Royal Rumble, he, and there was a span of of literally, I think it was about thirty minutes where he didn't do anything. He literally didn't do anything. He just didn't nail a single offensive move in a span of 30 minutes. I kept my eye on him, which is just ridiculous. 
um, and and you know just makes that victory of his even more difficult to swallow because not only was it based on that kind of weird uh, Eddie you know monetizing Eddie's and his death. Uh, but also Ray did very little to justify it in the match as well. So it comes off as very entitled and kind of uh, just a little bit ugly. Benoit in, in 2004, I mean, he's always in the thick of the action. He's a part of a number of major set pieces in the match. You know, it comes down to him and Big Show, and he gets the trash beaten out of him by, by Big Show. Uh, a lot of the matches, bigger moments, he's a part of. And he's going to be a part of because he's there from number one, you know. So you can't you can't be there for 60 minutes. I mean, this is something we were talking about on the on the Facebook chat earlier today before we uh, recorded, uh, Mav, was you were saying, you know, if you're in there for 60 minutes, you've obviously got a lot more time to do a lot more in the ring, and that's very much true. You've got a lot more time to do a lot less in the ring, as seen by Ray two years later, but with Benoit, he very much, I think, does a lot more with the time that he's given. Uh, And it's, 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 it's one, I mean, I will say that, and then we'll come back to this with one of the higher rated performances, or I will come back to this with one of the higher rated performances last year, I think 04, it's, it's, it's got a lot of creative edge to it, but it kind of judges from one set piece to another. It doesn't watch very smoothly, I don't think. Um, but I will say that the final two between Benoit and Big Show, because I remember I remember watching the Royal, that year's Royal Rumble on videotape a couple of days after it happened and wondering how the hell Benoit, literally wondering how the hell Benoit was going to eliminate Big Show and how that was going to work. And the way they did it, I thought, was fantastic. Um, and And... and so brilliantly in character as well because it was just a technical way of winning the match. I mean, yeah, it was. It, I think it was a. I mean, a brilliant final two, but also a brilliant first two. Like him and Orton was such an inspired first two to have in the match because you know Orton was just really coming into his own as a singles performer, um, and he'd really started to I think to sort of hit the groove of having those really good mid card matches. And you put him in there with a veteran like Benoit, and Orton is. I mean, I'm, I don't know. I mean, obviously, no spoilers for your thing. I don't know if he's going to show up, um, you know, um, in your series. But he lasts like half an hour and he's absolutely fantastic in it. And him and, and Benoit kind of come, you know, come to blows quite a lot more than just in the first two minutes of the match. Um, and so I think that's that's a really good aspect of it as well. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's the, the thing is with Benoit is that, again, it was just that, like in Bret Hart, it's that absolute grit and determination, you know, like no matter what he's been through, you know, he's just going to triumph for the end because he's got that kind of iron will. And I think I think they, they do that really well. I mean, I always remember the video montages um, after he won that, you know, he looks absolutely exhausted, like he's been beaten to a pulp and like he can't quite believe that, that, that he's won it. And, and as you say, like the idea of those 16 years of his career leading leading to that moment, because, you know, again, WWE hadn't really done that kind of thing before before Benoit and, and Guerrero. They'd never really done that before. You know, people like, um, you know, people like Austin and Foley, like they might have had careers elsewhere, but, um, you know, they kind of won titles like relatively, you know, when they were still relatively young. Um you know, sort of Benoit and, and Guerrero were firmly in the veteran category when they kind of, yeah. you know, when and they won I, those. I, I wonder how much that's that's come to influence some of the more toxic uh, habits they have around sort of world titles and and all the guys sticking around too long and stuff is is an interesting thing. But um, it's it, it's worth saying as well, of course, that Benoit's not just his performance, but his victory that year 
saw the Royal Rumble go back to experimenting with new concepts because that was the first year that they decided, okay, a Royal Rumble and a brand split, you get to pick which world champion you're gonna you're gonna challenge for because there's a loophole in you know the stipulation that we introduced back in 1993, which was a really cool touch because it also led to you know what is actually a, a, a kind of a, a bit of a, a guilty pleasure of mine, which is the 15-man SmackDown Royal Rumble they did the following week on on SmackDown when Benoit had deserted Paul Heyman because of the way Paul Heyman had treated him, and they did like a Royal Rumble on TV that Eddie won, um, which is a lot of fun as well. Absolutely, absolutely, and of course, you know, yeah, I mean, the the, the whole. You know, the whole setup for WrestleMania 20 was really, you know, it was really good. It's, I think, I think, you know, it's a shame that on the night, you know, sort of that Lesnar-Goldberg thing and various other stuff that they did kind of takes the the wind out of it a little bit. But I think I've always, I've always found a lot to like about WrestleMania 20 in general, actually. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's strange undercard to the show um but it's you know it's a decent show absolutely but the benoit and eddie obviously the crown achievements and i and i think i mean i can i can kind of see where Maz is coming from if he's not sort of that in, into that arc than the the rumble performance and the rumble victory because the, the whole emotional uh the where all of the emotion comes from with benoit's victory is the fighting effort so if you're not into that into either the victory or the fighting effort then you're, you're gonna not you're gonna struggle to be into any of it so let's uh, let's move on and have a look at well this we got joint um, second place here between uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin in nineteen ninety seven and of course Ric Flair in nineteen ninety two. Should we start with Austin? Uh, yeah. If you um, now this is a a, a real a real favourite of mine. I, I you know ninety seven in some ways isn't. You know, it's, it's it's a kind of Royal Rumble where you've got a lot of uh, a lot of jabronis early on, especially, and it can feel like a bit of a chore to wade through that first little bit. But once Austin comes in, it's kind of all business from there on in terms of uh, how he how he wrestles that match. It's one of the greatest like character performances that I think you'll ever see. Like he was so in command of that like bastard heel character, like do anything to win. Um, he was so razor focused. Like you look in his eyes in that match. It's got you know those terrifying icy eyes that when he was a heel, like you know, were really quite, I think, quite chilling. And then of course, once he became a, a face, it's what gave him that absolute intensity at all times. Um, and then of course, when Brett's music hits, it all just it all just goes off. And and then you get the shenanigans, of course, with him um, being thrown out, but no referees noticing. And of course. Um, one of those great rumbling consistencies. Like they'll they'll show a replay to show that only one of Shawn Michaels' feet hit the floor, but they won't show a replay to show that um, Austin cheated to win the rumble. But it, it's not only is it a brilliant story, and the, as we've said many times in this show, the build to WrestleMania 13 is among the very best things that the company have ever done. It's not just that though. It's it's just the match itself is so kind of masterfully constructed. I think. Well, it's, I, I dare say that a large reason why Austin's performance in 97 is so brilliant is because it's, it's, it's one of very few that are expected to carry what is still a very big match. You know, the Royal Rumble match is, is very broad in its scope. You've got a roster of 30 characters. You've got at least a runtime of, what, 50, 55 minutes, more often than not over an hour. 
And when you find yourself as WWF, then as it was, it did at the time sort of um, kind of shy a few entrants and you're bringing in luchadors to help boost it all up and stuff. Um, and it's, it leads to this situation. It's a very odd rumble to watch back, I find. Uh, but, but Austin's performance stands out for that. One of the things that I love so much about his performance in, in all of the rumbles that he was a prominent part of, uh, perhaps with the exception of 2002, uh, but certainly in 2001, 1999, uh, and I mean, to a degree, 98 and, and here, there's always, the, you know, I was speaking about those two versions of the favorite earlier on. You've got an underdog and an action hero. Austin always blended those two together. So in, in 97 and, uh, you know, 99, for example, he's kind of an underdog in 97 because he comes in fourth. Um, and by the way, it's absolutely brilliant that The Rock basically repeats it the following year. I mean, how sort of fatalistic is that? But uh, from the same number as well. But Austin comes in fourth. So, you know, he's an underdog in the sense that he's got to go pretty much the entire distance in order to try and win this thing. Um, you know, 98, he's kind of they do the whole marked man thing. Everyone's out to get him. So he's a bit of an underdog there. Uh, 99 is in the context of the McMahon arc. So he's an underdog in that sense. In 2001, he gets beaten up before he even gets to the ring and he's busted open and bleeding like a fountain. Uh, so he's an underdog in that sense. But then his performance in the ring is so proactive all the time and his performances in every single rumble he's a part of is so ferociously, uh, you know, it's just forward motion all the time. Uh, and so always energetic. I mean, even in 2002, which is really quite lethargic when you get to the final few, few uh, moments of it. Um, you know, he's still, when he, he comes in like a house of fire. I love 2002. <laughs> he's always, what's that? Sorry. I love 2002. It's like probably uh, my, probably my, it's probably like my second favorite. Oh, really? Oh, dear. Um, well, anyway, uh, the point being that he always blends those two ideas together, that on the one sense, he's, you know, he's evoking that emotion as, oh, OK, you know, there's, how the hell is he going to do this? And on the other sense, he then barrels his way through these Royal Rumble matches so brilliantly, it's little wonder that he ended up being the only guy to win three so far. Touchwood, he will, by the end of this year, still be the only guy to have won three. Um and 97 in particular, you know, to get him, I feel like you're seeing Austin in his prime. Because it's before, he, obviously, the, the neck break. You know, it's it's when he's amalgamating the kind of the brawling style that he'd come to lean heavily on after the neck break with the, the more technical stuff that he was doing a long time before it. The character is just on fire and popping all the way through it. You know, the, the, the body language and the physicality and the, I mean, the facial expression when Bret Hart's music hits as the hitman makes his entrance remains an absolutely classic moment. Uh, where he's sat on the top corner and his eyes mm. kind of bulge out of his out of his skull almost. Well, I love that, that he does that twice actually. The, the the fact that he in '97 he's resting on the top rope, kind of you know looking at his fake his fake tape wristwatch, but then in 2002 he does the same thing and plays it for laughs. It's such yeah, a great contrast. Absolutely self-referential. It's great, um, and you know. Again, you've got experimentation in, in the way that the match finishes with his performance here, with the idea of him not be, you know, it's a, and again, another very simple thing that you could easily imagine happening. The referees don't see someone get eliminated, so there's nothing stopping them going back in. Uh, you know, it would transition into the final four, which you and I are both absolutely massive fans of, the final four match the following month. Um, but also, you know, lest we forget, this is a dominating performance, not just in the sense that Austin exudes you know, magnetic stage presence all the way through and dominates the ring in terms of just his, his larger-than-life personality and performance. 
but dominating in a very literal sense. I think he throws out like six or seven guys through the course of the match, uh, and he's in there from number four. You know, so it's it's a remarkable uh, performance, and you kind of think, you know, if only WWE would would give someone that kind of a performance these days. Like you could hardly imagine, you know, someone being in the kind of position today, a contemporary talent of this generation being in the kind of position Austin was in '97 today, and being allowed to go into a Royal Rumble match and just throw guys out left, right, and centre, dominate the field mm. for the vast majority, and eventually end up being crowned the winner. Of well, it. I mean, here's the thing: it's it's like you say, it's a 45-minute Iron Man performance that that is is one of those Iron Man performances that no one ever talks about, I guess, because you know, is 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 ninety. Eight and 2001 performances came as in his big face run. So I guess you know for for, for people that maybe weren't around in '97, they maybe I guess they may be ones that they're more exposed to. Um, but yeah, so he so he gets ten eliminations in the match. Um, ten. And, yeah. Jesus, uh, I didn't uh, think he was that many. And uh, what's interesting, um, what's particularly... So that means he had the record then. Until, until Kane, Kane, yeah. Which, of course, they never, I don't think they ever referenced that at the time. They just no. it's, like, it's one of those things like um, when the Undertaker got to 10, they suddenly started referencing the streak. I think with Kane, it was like, oh, he's got the record. Um, but he throws out 10 people. And what's really interesting, I find, is that 2015... They were so close to being able to do that with Rusev and, and Wyatt, which is yeah. it's, it's really interesting because they because Rusev and Wyatt they go into that match really early, they're really dominant, and you have that awful bit where Big Show and Kane basically just yeah. kind of like treat them like little children, mm-hmm. and it's it's infuriating because what you just described a breakout performance for a contemporary star well Rusev and, and Wyatt have that in that match but it all gets taken well, away from them yeah they should have continued it they they should have done what you know Big Show and Kane did in that match yeah. it's it's I watched it recently for research in the series I'm writing and it's and I, I think I said this a couple of years back as well but it's it's bizarre when you watch it because that they, they they form this kind of alliance with one another. It's a really kind of magnetic moment, and between them, they they equal I think like Kane's record between them. They eliminate something like eleven guys, um, and then it gets to the end, and all of a sudden, it's as if Big Show and Kane have been doing that, doing what White and Rusev had been doing. Like it's it watches like a completely alternative match altogether when you get down to Big Show. It's weird. And if they'd allowed White and Rusev, like Mazza just said, to do what Big Show and Kane did at the end, it would have perfectly fit the narrative of the rest of the match. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah, Austin's performance in '97 is is just a, a wonderful one to sit back and watch. Maz, you were um, having technical difficulties during that. I mean, anything you want to add about about Austin in '97? No, I think uh, you know it. it made all of our lists and I, I think the reasons that you guys have said is is pretty much it. it it's masterful character work from austin it's you know the top uh, at the very top of his game at that point you know not not the most popular he he would become but that's why he became popular this character <laughs> right there absolutely know. yeah so, he was he was so good in 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 sort of the well really for like the end of 96 and then all of 97 uh, you know, it's one of the greatest um, runs, not just character work, but also ring work as well that you'll see. People forget yeah. that about Austin. Absolutely. Um, all right, let's look at Ric Flair then. So, of course, 1992, the uh, the, the rumble, of course, that, that many people hold 
in the highest regard, particularly perhaps older fans. Um, and of course, you know, it's a match which retains a lot of its uh, a lot of its charm, you know, even today. And um, you know, it was the original the original sort of um, coast to coast performance. I mean, I know Flair comes in number three, so it's not quite coast to coast, but nevertheless, uh, and you know, spends an hour uh, in the ring. Um, what was DBS's the year before? It wasn't anything like an hour, was it? It was more like forty minutes, I think. Um, and things like when I was recording uh, SCID this week is that every year from '88 to '93, someone breaks, someone does the Ironman performance longer than the year before. So <coughs> DBS was I think 45, 46 minutes, and then '91. Martel goes to 51 minutes, and then 92, Ric Flair goes to an hour, 93, Bob Backlund goes to an hour and one minute. Amazing. Um, so, I mean, it is a it is a brilliant... Ca- again, this, this performance is a character performance from Flair, isn't it? And I think, you know... You know, maybe WWF um, didn't necessarily see the best of Ric Flair in the ring because he wasn't there for long enough um, to kind of put together, like, a huge library of, of of matches but of course this is what he'll always be remembered for in wwf i mean quite rightly so yeah i mean it was it it that's it that that was his big moment in in that run you know in his peak and it's just fantastic I, you know people of our age that was just amazing i remember sitting there watching it for the first time and it's i mean you can't you can't undersell Heenan's part in this as well. You know, Heenan does an Iron Man performance at the booth in this one, as well as, as Flair in the ring. It's not um, fair to Flair. <laughs> it's, you know, the energy he puts in. I mean, we, we just talked about Austin's energy in all these Rumble matches. You know, the energy, there's not much that's comparable to that. But, you know, I, I think Heenan's, Heenan's energy at the booth for that one hour was just insane you know you you could feel his his angst and his you know every every moment of, of worry and concern about his meal ticket potentially not making it but it's just it, it's it's you know the the real big standout iron man performance when you think about an iron man in a rumble you think about rick flair in 92 that's where your mind goes originally and just he, he sells it. He sells it fantastically in that Flair way, you know, not not quite in that Bret Hart way, but you know, in the way that Flair does, a bit over the top at times and and crazy, but you know, gets the job done. And uh, I love it. I just love that Rumble. It, it's my favourite Rumble. I don't ever see it not being my favourite Rumble. I think I think as well at the time. The the other thing to think about uh, you know, at the time was is how big a deal it was when Flair came over. Because, you know, even as a, a even as a, you know, kid that, that um, you know, was a exclusively or more or less exclusively a WWF kid, you knew who Ric Flair was. And you knew how big a deal it was for him to come over. And then for him to be in a rumble, you know, and, and one of the reasons why this rumble is so fondly remembered is, is that, you know, even if you just... If you look at the first three, even Bulldog, DiBiase, Flair, you know, you've got, um, it's Michaels' debut rumble as a solo performer. You've got, you know, Tito Santana. You've got, um, 
you know, Bossman, Piper, Jake Roberts, Jimmy Snooker, IRS, Undertaker, Macho Man, like, it's crazy, Hogan, Slaughter, Sid, you know, it's mad the amount of talent in that ring, and for Flair, I think, not only in kayfabe to outlast all of that talent, but also for WWF to have the balls to bring him in from WCW and then, and then sort of have him win the Rumble, I just thought, I just thought it was absolutely brilliant. And um, I, I guess the big question with this Rumble has always been, you know, um, you know, what if they'd really had the balls to do Flair Hogan at, at that WrestleMania instead of Flair Macho? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, put a bit of a damper on things now. Hey. Uh, obviously, I'm I'm uh, maybe it's an, maybe it is an age thing. I mean, obviously, I'm of, of a younger age than you guys, so I wasn't watching at the time. Of course, I was too young, um, and so I don't have that kind of um, emotional connection to the match. I discovered it in in retrospect. I do. I really like the '92 Rumble. Generally, I think it's it's a very good Royal Rumble. I think when you when you look at the the sheer amount of talent in the rumble match, you know I was talking about how ninety four does does a lot with significantly less than some of its other some of the other versions, and this is one. I think that you know there's, there's, there is a lot of talent in there, but there's not much in the way of variety in the action. There's a few cool moments in there, but I like to see it. You know, I just I just like to see a little bit more varied content than than Ric Flair doing his routine on a cycle for for sixty minutes. But the, the main criticism that I would level at it, well, there's two. First of all, you know, kudos, like you said, Mav, it's great that they let Ric Flair win it, but the way they produced it was more of a case of Hulk Hogan losing it than Ric Flair winning it, and that always kind of bothers me a little bit. Um, the second and more prescient one is that I think Ric Flair's performance in 92, as fantastic as it is, basically just repeats Rick Martel's performance in 91, which, uh, you know, I know sounds like a horribly harsh criticism because it's, it's you know, it's the Nature Boy and it's it's the 92 Rumble. Um, but having watched the two very recently, not quite back-to-back, but almost back-to-back, it was remarkable, obviously not in terms of actions, because all the way through 92, Flair is doing his very unique and singular routine that we know and indeed love. But um, just the, the tone of the two performances, Martel's, you know, goes you know, only 10 minutes less than nine minutes less than Ric Flair does in 92 uh, is as much in the thick of the action. He's only three entrants later on in his entrance, in his, his, his own entrance. And he spends the vast majority of the match, you know, avoiding elimination and kind of hiding. There's a wonderful moment where he hides, he gets on the ring apron and hides behind the ring post as, as referees trying to tell him to get back in the ring and stuff. Um, but, you know, he, he plays the same role as that kind of crafty villain the difference is that his seems to be a, a little more focused on the fact it's a Royal Rumble match. He spends most of his time actively sort of hanging over the ropes, you know, actively kind of being halfway to elimination all of the time uh, in a way that really we, you know, we would see Flair do in, in night two, but Flair stayed most of the time, you know, in the ring kind of begging off and chopping and doing the backdrop and all the rest of it. And that's um, why Flair won and didn't get eliminated. Well, maybe, but it's, <laughs> It, listen, it makes sense from a from a uh, that fictional standpoint. Absolutely, I'm just saying from a from a real world standpoint, I prefer Rick Martel's performance to to Rick Flair's in '92. But we're obviously just talking about winning efforts here. In terms of its place among the winning efforts of Royal Rumble matches, obviously there's only been what 33, I want to say 34, something like that. Uh, then, then Flair's is absolutely you know um, one one of the best because it was the one that. Uh, 
it didn't, you know, it wasn't the first Ironman run. It wasn't the first, uh, not quite the first coast to coast because, as we say, it came in three, though it basically is pretty much that. But it was definitely the one that put uh, the idea of uh, someone being able to, because Monsoon's always saying all the way through the match, nobody who's drawn numbers one to five have been there at the end. Uh, and so, you know, to, to, to kind of set that precedent. And 92 is very important anyway for being the first one that actually puts some, some tangible stakes um, up for the winner. You know, instead of it just being a match, all of a sudden it was a match that had a weighty prize at the end of it. Yeah, and that was obviously important, wasn't it? I mean, I think the, the of course the next year it become that you got a uh, you got a number one contender shot, whereas you know, I guess this time around, um, you know, it was it was the uh, the vacant belt. So, yeah, I, I think it it will always remain. I think um, a, a legendary match and a legendary performance. I'm, I'm going to say something very hipsterish now, though, as well, and say that out of Ric Flair's Rumble performances, I actually prefer both his performance in '93 and his performance in 2005. You, you can literally never criticise me for saying something here ever again now. <laughs> <laughs> you know that, don't you? Go, uh, do your worst, lad. Uh, do your worst, Mav. Let's see what you can do. Oh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> if you can, you, you, you're going to have to work hard to get it back now. It's going to change number one to like something. Yeah, n- next next week, I'm going to have a list of ridiculous, like, hip statements. Like, oh, yeah, I... <laughs> I have to start. Th- I have to like write them all down and just try to like slide them into the show somehow. Um, all right, so of course um, that leaves us with number one, um, which is Randy Orton in two thousand and nine. I had this number one plan. I think you had it number two. Um, Matt, I had it number two. Matt, you didn't. You didn't. Did you have it, Mass? Had it number two. Yeah, you had it two. All right, yeah. So it. it I mean, of course. We talked about character. I think it's interesting. These last three in particular have all been, I think, particularly about character. And it's funny because I feel like Randy Orton is as a career when you're going to look back on it after he finally is retired, which, you know, given contemporary WWE booking policy, he'll be 63 when he does retire. But um, but when you look back at his career, I think you're going to I think you're going to see it as a missed opportunity because this is a guy who like I think he put it all together. I mean, literally everything together perfectly once, and it was on this night. I know that sounds like a harsh thing to say, but but I mean, this is a performance of like absolute perfection. I think, um, and I think you'll struggle to find many professional wrestling performances ever that, that are better than this. Um, and you just think this is a man that can do that. Like, I guess you'd like to have seen it happen more. Um, but you know, nothing worth there to take away from him. Um, the fact that on this night, he just, he was just imperious. I think from, from the moment he came out, it felt like an event, of course, like the build up to it with the, the punting of various McMahons and, um, the fact that he was kind of told by Jericho beforehand, you know, that famous promo, like McMahon's a vengeful people and, just the whole atmosphere around it was kind of was big time. And then he delivered a big time performance to go with the push. And I you know, plan, I think I saw you tweeting about this the other night. It's, it's, it's a brilliant Royal rumble. And, and it's this performance, I think that just sends it over the top. Yeah. I mean, the 2009 Royal rumble is my all time favorite and it's going to, uh, good luck trying to convince me that it's not just generally the best version of the Royal Rumble match we've ever seen either. 
it's curious to me that it doesn't get more love. I think you it does everything that other people's uh, most frequent picks for best Royal Rumble match does, but it does it so much smoother and it does it with so much more vivid, characterful life and it's got such weighty subtext to to so many parts of it. I mean, one of the things that I'm talking about doing is is um, a, a, a sort of a, a watch along on sports entertainment is dead with it uh, because when I was watching it the other night, what struck me was that the action is absolutely relentless but the set pieces, I mean, the way that they bleed into one another is so seamless. And when you think about how complex and tricky that has to be to pull off, just from a from a, a kind of a the standpoint of the choreography of it and, and the timing of all of it, you know, I mean, there, there are moments where you'll have two guys do one thing that bleeds into, you know, whoever's left standing doing something with somebody else. Then you, it pans into the background and there's something else going on. And it's not just guys hitting and kicking each other. It's not just guys wrapping up in the corner and trying to push one another over the top rope. I mean, you have Randy Orton nailing rapid fire RKOs, including a counter to Rey Mysterio lunging off the top rope, for example. You have Triple H uh, and Chris Jericho locking up with a protracted uh, uh, kind of series of exchanges over the walls of Jericho. You have... I mean, Triple H throwing Morrison into the Miz and eliminating them both is a moment that stems out of, I can't remember what set piece it stems out of, but that bounces out of another one. There's a moment um, where uh, then that in turn is followed by Rey Mysterio being thrown over and using Morrison and Miz as stepping stones. You know, and you get and you just get this this tapestry of uh, of set pieces and, and, and the action as a result is so creative the whole way through in a way that I've not seen in any other Royal Rumble match before or since. Like it just, it hasn't happened anywhere else to the same degree. There's also the fact, and I realize I'm going to be talking about all oh, not the match, but there's also the fact that I think more than any other Royal Rumble match, there's a real focus on people not just being thrown over the top rope, but the number of near eliminations in this thing. It feels like every single camera shot has somebody over the top rope, upside down, you know, dangling there, doing the skin, the cat spot. Even Big Show at the end, this was the first time Big Show did it. And in the midst of all of that, amazing stuff. You have Randy Orton with this commanding, authoritative character performance totally engulfed in that character of the Viper. I wrote a number of columns in 2009, sort of praising him for his complete commitment to the character. When he's in that ring, he's not a performer kind of just committing to a performance. He is the living, breathing, you know, he inhabits, it's like method acting. He inhabits that character completely. His body language, his movement, that wonderful moment where uh, Cody gets bested by Goldust and Randy lays Goldust out with an arcane and beckons Cody to him with one finger and then sort of directs Cody to throw him over the top, and moments like that. There's the fact that in the final six, you have Legacy operate as a single unit with Orton kind of calling the shots, obviously, um, and they're sort of pitted against, uh, uh, collectively as an equal against Undertaker Big Show Triple H. Um, you know, And the manner of his victory is fantastic as well, the way that it kind of, you think that he's momentarily been eliminated. If you're not watching closely, you might think he's already out. They kind of tease a Triple H win, and then Orton comes up from behind. Um, there's some some wonderful kind of interactions he has with the Undertaker uh, at various stages. Um, it's just like you say, Mav. It's such an incredible. I mean, I, I'm not. I'd have to sit and think about how much of your sort of assessment of his general career I agree with. It's not something I put much thought into, but certainly in this particular match, we're we're completely in agreement. Because above all else, lest we forget, he enters like seventh or eighth in the match. 
So he's he's you know he's practically doing a Ric Flair or a Rick Martel performance, and he makes it look effortless. I mean that to me is the most delightful thing about the 2009 Royal Rumble match of all is you have more Iron Man performances than you can shake a stick at, and every single one of them just looks like you could do it in your sleep, like you could get up and do it. They make it look that easy and that effortless, and Orton is perhaps the pinnacle of all of that. So it's, yeah, I mean, to be at the heart of the greatest Royal Rumble match of all time, in my mind, you know, is it... it so I, I, pick, I think I picked Austin in 97 as my number one, just because of the ferocity of that performance, but... Um, I think, you know, from a sort of structural and, and critical point of view, Orton's at the centre of the success of the greatest Royal Rumble match of all time. So how can't you call it the greatest winning performance ever? Yeah, I, I, you, you paint a pretty good uh, picture there. It's it, it's a fantastic, fantastic rumble. You know, people who, who love character work love this rumble. Orton is absolutely on the very top of his game. He's never been that good and it's not just that night it's that little bit before that night and that build up till to wrestlemania where it all goes off the boil in the main event i know it's a main event you like more than most but you know he would he had such such good command of his character at this point and you know sometimes a lot of the time we talk about you know the crowd and people catching fire because the crowd are getting behind them and, and stuff like that you know it, it's people also catch fire because they just get a character that works for them and they can fit into it and you know Orton obviously took to that role brilliantly and he he tends to when he when he does go in a similar similar area but you know never quite as good as he has here in 2009 and it, it's just a brilliant, brilliant performance. You know, you had Triple H holding his hand throughout the whole thing. Obviously, that helped because Triple H notoriously makes Randy Orton better, I think. <laughs> no? Okay. Uh, obvious, but, you know, is obvious, man. <laughs> but, you know, it was there. Obviously, Cody and, and, and Ted played their roles fantastically as well. And lots of other cameos, uh, as Plan was saying in that rumble. It's just... It's just a fantastically well-rounded, masterful rumble with, you know, Randy Orton giving, you know, not only winning it, but but being the MVP of that that moment and that night and just totally killing it. It's just fantastic. It's not not really much to add. You know, if you if you've not seen it or you've not seen it in a while, go back and watch it. You know, we we like to pretend that. 2017, 2017 was it? Uh, his, I don't. Is what? He, his rumble winning 2017. Oh, God. Oh, we like to pretend that didn't happen, definitely. We, we'd love to pretend. Yeah, exactly. We we we'll pretend that one didn't happen. You know, count this one twice if you have to because it, it deserves it. Absolutely. I, I think you know, it's something I, I I you know I've always had this little theory and I've never quite found a way to write about it I, I, you know i'll do my best to one day because it's something i've carried around with me for ages but you know like just that idea of when you know in a a certain period of time you know just everything clicks the character you know the match the opponents um and the person's skill set and you get a kind of perfect performance 
and it happens rarely, but when it does, it's something that you always remember watching. And I remember watching the pose down that Orton does at the end of that rumble with, you know, they obviously they just switched over to the voices music at that point in time. And just thinking like, this is, you know, because this is the point where he feels like real as a main eventer, even though he'd been a main eventer for like three, four years beforehand. Like that was the point where it felt justified. As you say, plan, maybe it was just the point where he should have <laughs> first ascended yeah. to that level. Yeah. Um, but it felt so special at the time. And and that's, I mean, that's what's so curious about that period. You know, you, uh, I think you can say the same about Cena in 2008 as well. Like if that was, if you imagine that that was like Cena breaking into the main event scene, like what a way to do it. And same with Orton in, in this, this one as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can imagine if they ran an injury angle with Cena in 08 and he was kind of like still a, a prominent mid-card, mid-card person and then he, you know, he's a surprise entrant and wins like that. So that's That would be crazy, wouldn't it? Um, Absolutely. Uh, well, that pretty much concludes our look back at our favourite Royal Rumble winning performances. Do um, make sure you check out Plan's um, first column. He also gets bonus hit points from me including Don Morocco on his list. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. Um, so, I love Don Morocco. I love Don Morocco. He's fantastic. His match against um, Ted DiBiase at WrestleMania 4 is one of my ultimate hipster picks. <laughs> love that Love that match. Very much. Um, all right. So, Probably the best match of that night. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Strike Force Demolition I'm very fond of as well. Oh, it's true, yeah. Um, and the Battle Royal where Brett breaks the trophy. <laughs> okay. how many more battle royals featuring brett right at the end are you, could you mention today <laughs> it's funny you imagine, i think i think it'd be crazy for that period of time right imagine if you would actually got to see some of these house shows where you know they were just tearing the house down because hogan wrestled in the opening match and took his you know got on his private jet and then the, the rest of that really talented roster just tore the place down like how amazing would that be Crazy to think about. Anyway, um, that will be it from us for this week, guys. Uh, do check out the rest of LOP Radio shows, including, of course, on Sunday. Um, I think we're branding it Britshock. Um, but nevertheless, it's going to be the uh, the UK powers collide. It's going to be um, implications, plan, myself and Leaf uh, doing a, a kind of, well, a version of Plan and Steve's uh, Aftershock show, but for NXT Takeover UK Blackpool. <laughs> Bit of a mouthful that. Uh, yeah, quite rolls off the tongue. <laughs> but we will be we will be sort of breaking down everything that happened in that show, match by match. Um, and of course, Imp and Leaf have got uh, a ton of knowledge about the UK scene, so it should be a really really good show. So definitely tune in for that one, and then we'll be back here next week, likely with some more Rumble stuff to talk about. All right. So until next time, guys, from the right side of the ponds, it's goodbye. Bye. Bye.